the Grange. I've never met anything standing still. It's always been whilst rummaging through, the from and the to, the hither, the thither, in the midst of, and the getting of this equilibrium, halfways levelled upright. So as to neatly again hold a conversation with the both of my hands, as opposed to that of letting others hold them for me, to let myself once more take the weight of the moment, the day, the following breath. For there are times in this life when the rudimentals become the fundamentals, and it's all that can be done to merely eat, to greet, to sleep, to love a friend, a sibling, myself, and learn how to rest in the quiet, giving up the continual gazing out of that blue window that I keep in my back pocket, to retire from the running, and just like my grandfather at the Grange, who would pick out a tree far off in the distance as a measuring point and drive towards it, I will learn again to wake, to walk slowly, softly, keeping these furrows straight. What does a Makara farmer's son do when the economic viability of carrying on his family's vocational tradition becomes unsustainable in an ever-changing modern landscape? Well, this farmer's son writes a thesis on gender and masculinities, walks the pilgrim's road in search of the great white spirit, and spends his time reading poets like White, O'Donoghue and Dylan. I suppose I've always searched for a, a kinder theology, a theology where nothing is lost, where everything is meaning, where everything is connected. And I think I've always been attracted to more subtle ways to explore divinity or theology than the, than, than, than the kind of really in-your-face notions, you know. Seamus Campbell is a writer, researcher and aspiring feminist from County Derry. His pioneering work around masculinities within conflict transcends cultural and religious divides. He gives voice to the often forgotten and ignored whisper of those who dwell at the fringes of our society, those furthest from privilege, and the mindless social soapboxes that plague our dwindling attention spans. Campbell is a phenomenal listener, and perhaps this is his greatest strength of all, his comprehension to pinpoint even the most subtle masculinities within an environment is his superpower, and his almost mystical outlook on life infiltrates both his conversation and his writing. Seamus is one of the most sincere humans you will ever meet and one of my closest friends. I catch up with him on his return home from Kenya where he was speaking about his unique research at a human rights conference. In this interview he talks to me about his work at the Transitional Justice Institute at Ulster University, Jordanstown, the perils of writing a PhD and his hope for Northern Ireland's future. 
So tell me about a day in the life of Seamus Campbell currently. Right now, okay. Um, oh, day in the life right now. So we've been topsy-turvy currently. Uh, typical day consists of waking up, up about 8am, getting out of bed at 9am, <laughs> uh, doing my odds and ends, particulars, breakfast, etc., and then sit down to usually write or read about 10 if I'm optimistic, more realistically 11. Uh, and try to do that until about 6, 6 or maybe 7 on a good day. Usually punctuated by a, a couple of series of Brooklyn Nine-Nine or The Big Bang Theory, about <laughs> one or two. Or both. That's my wee staple until, until I get finished writing my thesis. And what's that about then? Um, so... Uh, I'd say broadly, you could say it's within within peace and peace and conflict studies, uh, and based at the Transitional Justice Institute, Austria University, and uh, my thesis looks at the experiences and identities of civilian men during periods of conflict. So, there's been quite a lot written about soldiers, uh, certainly in terms of their identities, the type of masculinity they're they're trained to have, or or the yeah, that militarized type of masculinity, but there's not a lot written about civilian men and their identities and how they navigate conflict. Um, and when we think of the term civilian, we tend to think of women and children and adult civilian men in particular. I think it's hard for them to articulate their rights, to, to claim the right to that category. And hence, oftentimes they suffer disproportionately from conflict violence. So I'm looking at that aspect of it, but I'm also really looking at their identities and how they, they navigate conflict, how they continue to be civilian, but also, uh, but also articulate their, their masculinities at a time whenever it might be more culturally acceptable to, to, to get a gun, you know? Yeah. How does a farm boy from <laughs> Makara end up writing a thesis on such a thing? Hmm. Well, I've always, I think it's fair to say, I've always been quite unusual or, or been quite unusual for a long time. Uh, I think part of me always liked words and liked, liked writing. Remember, I had a teacher at school that, that really kind of seemed to, to see some writing ability and really encouraged me in that. Yeah. But certainly wasn't particularly gifted at, at writing or even that scholarly through school. When I went to university and, and discovered... I think sociology in particular just opened up a new way for me to see the world. And I really enjoyed that. And uh, particularly, particularly gender and how, how gender works and gender roles and stereotypes and yeah. how it shapes our lives. Um, so then I, I was thinking about doing a master's in sociology, but I suppose I lacked the motivation or, or maybe the belief in myself at that time. Ended up doing peace and conflict studies. And then when it was time to write my thesis, we could... Uh, choose a topic of, of, of our choosing. So I wanted to do something with, with gender to get that kind of sociological element into it. And first of all, I thought I would, I would look at women's experiences of war, but when I rummaged around the literature, I couldn't really see how I could write something new or original, or it just wasn't exactly speaking to me until I came across a body of literature on masculinities yeah. and some of masculinities in conflict. So I wrote my master's thesis in that, and then eventually submitted um, a PhD proposal and got accepted and kind of evolved from evolved since that so 
I'm really comfortable with with gender and conflict and with with masculinities and conflict. It's kind of it's kind of my thing within 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 academia or within yeah. my work. And you've been doing that, I guess, now for the last three years. I've been working on my PhD thesis for four years now. Four um, years. Um, yeah, and a bit longer. Um, really should be finished, I suppose, but uh, there's been a few hiccups along the way, and and I'm kind of getting there very slowly with it. Yeah, I can't even imagine the slog that that would be, especially trying to sit down every morning to write for that long. It it, it is a slog. I'm kind of caught between two places. Um, there's definitely the farm boy in me who wants to be outside, you know, perwashing and and painting, and who, who's very very restless. And I think because of that background makes me more restless. I think it it it. I think for me because of. I've saw that the immediate results of work, growing up, that the, the results of this work are so slow that it's hard to be that patient. It's hard to be that discipline yeah. for me. Um, but at the same time, I enjoy it and almost approach it like like a day's work on the farm and, and have the same sense of satisfaction. I think it did a good day's work, and the same sense of of. Uh, uh, it costing you something it being painful it being painful and also I suppose disappointment if I don't get as much achieved <laughs> as I'd hoped to so you're um, you're a hard taskmaster on myself yes uh huh yeah. I'm never happy with with what I achieve there's always there's always more there's even in my best days I'll, I'll be thinking about the next paragraph or thinking about how I could write this or um, be a little bit of a a, a self critic uh, yeah, which is hard to change. I think more broadly, it might be interesting to say. I think growing up as a, as a, maybe a thoughtful, sensitive type on a on in in a, a rural northern Irish landscape. Um. I was very intrigued by the masculinities I I saw around me, particularly the the suppose that the working class, even rural farmer type masculinity, and I'd been really perplexed by it. Yeah, and I suppose. The study of masculinities was maybe a way of me trying to locate myself and other men within this field. I think there's a reason why it appeals to me. And I think it's maybe a sense of feeling out of place within this sometimes almost hyper-masculine or ruggedly masculine world in the way that I, I never was or could really hope to be, to be honest. Mm. How, um, I guess telling it is that it was a teacher at school that first took an interest in your writing Mm -hmm. and I guess the importance of mentorship even in small ways when we're younger Mm -hmm. as the catalyst propels forward to maybe make decisions when we're older Mm -hmm. you were in Kenya recently Mm -hmm. and how was that or what was that like? Yeah. I'll, I'll maybe go back to your to your to your to your previous point about maybe about mentorship. I suppose that, that teacher realised that I had, had creativity, you know, which was which was good, but um in all honesty I was never a great writer through my, my GCSEs or A levels. Uh but I was always more comfortable with abstraction than with practicality. Mm-hmm. Um and uh I look at a lot of my colleagues and a lot of them are from more privileged backgrounds than myself. Not all of them, but a lot of them. I think it gives them a slight advantage just in terms of maybe their use of language, the things they discuss, 
maybe the way their, their family even understand them or, or uh, understand their journey. So, um, and, and there is people like me maybe who've, 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 um, who've made that journey, but I think it's slightly more difficult and maybe speaks to social mobility more broadly, you know? Yeah. But um, the opportunity in Kenya came about uh, basically, they were doing a workshop on, on gender and generation was a broad theme. Um, I didn't know until I, I got there really, but it involved three organizations from based on three continents, um, Africa, Asia and the Middle East, and they were cooperating on various research projects together. The person that invited me um, was a woman who also has written on civilian men and masculinities. And she came to a conference that myself and a colleague organized about three years ago now at the Ulster University and she also came to a summer school at the Traditional Justice Institute Summer School and so we, we talked there and we kind of were aware of each other's work. So I got invited to kind of to, to present my research there on, on Northern Ireland, Israel, Palestine. It's a really good opportunity. Most of the people there were researchers, though researching for their respective organisations and so the time frame tended to be much um, shorter and uh, they may be more, uh, probably looking at more specific issues. So um, I was the only PhD student there. I think there was one or two academics there. But when I presented my research, um, I was lucky in the sense that I'd been thinking about this stuff for almost nonstop for four years, whenever maybe the other participants were yeah, feeling their way into research projects and were maybe doing this research project with other projects or with other um, responsibilities, you know, for maybe a year or two or maybe two at the most. Yeah. So I think that the research was well received. People asked me questions about it. I think um, were kind of interested in it. It got them thinking about things like the position of civilian men, their their relative vulnerability in terms of being targeted during conflict, their 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 identities. Um, I think it complemented the the work that was that, that was yeah. going on there, which is maybe more more immediate. Not all of them were kind of focused on gender as well. And I think my contribution to me as well was that the things they, they talk about, I could refer them maybe to one or two academic papers that talk about this specific topic, you yeah. know, um, whether it's to do with masculinities or how the law works for women or or whatever, you know. So it's a really good opportunity to present my almost finished research to uh, an audience. Yeah, and hopefully it will not take, take you too much longer because I know you're keen to... To move on to something else and, and get back probably on an aeroplane and leave me and leave the rest of us and do something awesome. You're much further travelled, Seamus, than me. Um, in the time I've known you, you've lived in Canada, um, Slovakia. You've lived um, a few places. I lived for about seven or eight months in Madrid. Madrid, yeah. Um, I was in South Africa for six weeks, but that wasn't too long a period of time. And I've kind of intermittently lived in, in Barcelona as well. Yeah. Just to throw it in the mix. Yeah, you're, you're much further travelled than, than myself. But um, you walked the Camino back in 2000... 2014. And 14. What was that experience like? The, the Camino was, was great, and I've, I've really been thinking about it uh these past few days um really uh for a number of of reasons i suppose um i I think i think we were actually discussing about it and i think i think i said that if i I was to walk the camino now i would would really experience it very differently you know okay 
I think these these last years and these maybe last two years in particular have been really quite trying. I would say um, when I walked it, it, it was it was a great experience. Uh, it was something I wanted to do. I suppose that I hope to. I've always liked the idea of, of just walking with with no real purpose. <laughs> uh, I liked I liked seeing the countryside. Um, met some nice people. Um, there was another fella from Stravan that I taught English with who who came with me. But in all honesty, I I didn't really have any maybe aha moments or mystical experiences apart from one, and I'll tell you about it. point in the Camino, I think it's in, in Galicia, which is the, the northwest of Spain, t- towards the t- towards the end of of the of that of the Camino, um, towards um, towards Santiago, uh, sorry, Santiago de Compostela. Am I getting that right? I think yeah. It's the most elevated point, and uh, people, I think they they, they 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 take a stone they've been carrying either from the start or at some point in the Camino. And they they placed it on top of each other so that at this highest point, um, which is just kind of um, you know a point in the road, and then off to it there's this quite high pile of stones, maybe about fifteen feet high. Yeah. That that's made up of just individual stones that people have put there over the years. Yeah. And um, you, you notice there is an awful lot of of uh, mass cards, as we we would call them, like um, these little cards remembering people's lives. The, the date they die when they're born uh, usually usually with a prayer attached okay and people carry these with these cards with them people would often carry them of their of their relatives or or maybe their friends and so on this pile of stones you would often see a lot of these wee cards uh, put oh, okay. in or maybe just some writing like um r.i.p somebody written it written in a yeah, stone yeah um so I was looking through these cards and ironically I found a, a mass card of someone from Drooperstown oh which is our uh adjacent adjacent town so that was that was odd um in itself and i remember remember feeling at the time really connected to i'm not exactly sure who but maybe probably to anyone who'd ever did the camino before <laughs> really having a real sense of this yeah and really thinking this is this is not the the inward experience i expected you mm. know and really unsure what to do with it mm. and uh feeling quite powerful and then going on the way and maybe more mundane thoughts or concerns take over and I suppose in these last few years I've come to realise how, how connected we all are and how our, our separateness is something of an illusion and I think I got a hint of that then that I really wasn't aware of Yeah. Um, 
part of me would would be really tempted to uh, walk it again after I finish my PhD or walk part of it again. I think it would find it quite therapeutic. I think it would help me to release these these years in a sense. Yeah, I mean it's quite heavy. It's quite heavy work that you're doing. You know, you're talking about very important issues, and it's very it's very much new ground in many respects. Hmm. So I'm sure it does take its toll on you emotionally, mentally, spiritually, every way, I guess. I've kind of given my all. Uh, I'm kind of running on empty right now, but mm-hmm. hopefully there's enough empty to get me to get me finished, you know? Enough, fuel, enough fumes in the tank, as we um, say. Uh, recently as well, I was, um, I, was, uh, I was trying to Google a uh, David White quote. Um, okay. And the quote goes something like... Uh, anything that does not make you feel alive is, is too small for you, you know. Uh, so uh, I like that quote and I, um, I stumbled upon a uh, TED Talk that, it, that, he, that he had done. Yeah. Um, so short TED Talk, 17 minutes standard, I guess, whatever, 20 minutes. But um, in the TED Talk, he talks about his niece who walked the, who walked the Camino. Yeah. You know? And um, I walked until Santiago de Compostela. You could walk three more days until the the uh, further on until the coast of a place called Finisterre which I think translates as the end of the world um, because it would be one of the most if not one of the most maybe not the most westerly points in Europe and I suppose whenever people were making that pilgrimage in centuries past they, they would have considered the end of the world yeah um, so I would like to do that that part mm. and he talked about um, her experience and, and the there's there's kind of traditions of, of leaving something behind that got you there, you know, and she left her boots behind and um maybe it's another ritual of, of burning something. Yeah. And um she was quite uncertain about her future, I think. Um and she saw the the, the moon coming down and kind of cascade over the water and then very quickly disappeared. Wow. And she said that she realised in that moment that she had to step out onto the unknown. She just she just graduated from Sligo University, I think. Um, and take the next step and I'm not quite there yet but I think I'll probably have to make a similar step in the in the months or within the next year so um, yeah it uh, connected to me on, on multiple levels that, that that talk and the the subsequent poems that he that he that he um, crafted from, from yeah experience I mean I'm a huge fan of David White as well he of course was a close friend of the late John O'Donoghue <laughs> who you and I both uh Obsess a little over his writings. I guess who else would be mentors or influences or people that you look up to mm. in recent times? In recent times, yeah. I think in, in some ways I've spent the past year, um, I suppose going back, I've, I've always had a, an interest in, in, in theology, but maybe I've always felt kind of constrained by the influences or, or, or the words that have the, the, in, in the Catholic tradition that have, that have that have grown up in, you know, maybe feeling that it's a little bit rigid or narrow or just maybe, just maybe didn't speak to me, but I've always had a an appetite for, for for the divine or the mystery of the divine, you know. Yeah. And this year I suppose maybe fueled by my own uh maybe battles or, or struggles, um I've um I become interested in people like John O'Donoghue, um, David White, even even Mary Oliver. I've enjoyed getting to know her poetry a little bit. Um, Tara Brock has has really changed my mindset in, in many things. 
I suppose going back, I, I was really interested in, in, in Nelson Mandela and his, just his peace and his calmness and his, his fortitude and, and forgiveness. Another person would be Archbishop Desmond Tutu, um, who uh, I think great spiritual leader in his own right. Yeah. And also a very happy, peaceful man. I, I suppose I've, I've always searched for a, a kinder theology, a theology where nothing is lost where everything is meaning, where everything is connected. And I think I've always been attracted to more subtle ways to explore divinity or theology than the than 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 the kind of really in your face notions, you know, or or uh, I remember being really intrigued in Canada about Native American spirituality and uh, I remember come, coming across a, a term where where a tribe referred to the divine as the great white spirit. I remember thinking that was in many ways a, a much more positive way to think about it than, than, than God who, you know, we all have so much uh, baggage attached to yeah. concepts like God and how it can be very free and almost to, to refer to it in, a, in another way. I think I think growing up I was, um, I uh, definitely felt an attachment, attachment to the land, the farm and still very much do. But also I think had a sense that my relationship to, to to place and home and being confined there was maybe too small, although I maybe wouldn't have quite been able to articulate that later. My my first degree was in was in land use and environmental management. Um Okay. And I suppose I did that maybe partly due to the influence of my parents, but also because I was I was I, I knew that I couldn't farm. I had been been, you know, economically impossible basically um and maybe it was a way to keep kind of close to that or to keep um within that within thread, that thread. Uh, but in all honesty i don't think my heart was ever really in it um, my other option would have been history and in hindsight maybe i should have did history but i was lucky enough in the land use environmental management degree um that i could pick up modules in politics modules in sociology um, modules even on, on planning which wasn't my thing but it was more theoretical in nature and I was always more comfortable with theory with sociology, with society, with people with political systems and uh, it's, it's not that I didn't like the farm and the land and the attachment but I think that was one thing that my studies were another I uh, I no desire to to work in or, or really theorise about <laughs> about the, the the land in that way you know yeah um, but would you say there was a connection between where you started and where you've ended up? Starting ended up. Mm-hmm. I, I suppose at that time as well. I think I um. I I think I've, I've long had a concern for even the environment, or you know, um, I think very aware of even the use of, for example, artificial fertilizer in the farm, you know, and or even chemicals, and always felt kind of uneasy and maybe to this day do and maybe always had a had a concern for I think the welfare of other of other people particularly in the developing world I remember uh, in in as I was doing my undergraduate degree we could present on a on a choice of of topic any any topic 15 minute presentation basically to further presentation skills and I choose to present on Trokra and the work that Trokra do you know which yeah. was very left of field of, of, of my degree at the time. Of course. 
Um, another point maybe was um, in third year of my undergraduate degree where I took a module on the sociology of development and I looked at topics in development from a sociological perspective like, like foreign aid, like how do you measure wealth, like the influence of multinational companies in developing countries. And I loved that. That was my favourite point in that module. Um, and it kind of really, really spoke to me. It, I think it brought together everything that I was kind of passionate about. And then um, I, I, uh, I, I like peace and conflict studies because it, it was kind of similar to history. You could study different contexts. I suppose as well, it, it was about normative change, about, about positive change. And then when I got the opportunity to go to Canada as an exchange student, it really fueled my thirst for travel and new experiences and and and, uh, and looking out the window and wondering what the, that plant was or why, why do people do things in that way or yeah. what that smell was. I remember coming back immediately afterwards and, and seeing a couple of wayfellas riding a bike across the street. I remember thinking, I hope you know them fellas might never have the opportunity that I had. Yeah. I remember feeling really sorry for them Yeah. Um, and how blessed I was to that opportunity. And so I think since that time, I'm trying to combine my kind of thirst for adventure and thirst for travel with, I suppose, a concern about other people and helping other people. And um, even the past couple of days, I've been, been uh, I'm trying to write a, a chapter about the, the concept, what, what it means to be civilian, how that defined in law, um, who can claim that they're, that, that they're civilians in terms of you women and children can claim that they're more authentically civilians than adult yeah. men. And, really enjoying dealing with these concepts and writing and reading about it yeah um whenever maybe it's very heavy and to other people really boring but i feel blessed in many ways that i can i can deal with with work of such such gravitas of course i love your synopsis of spirituality and religion in ireland can you give us a a rundown on that Mm. Well, I, um, maybe don't quote me verbatim because there, there might be a few scholars out there who, who may say otherwise, but I think that spirituality in Ireland, maybe Catholicism was mixed with, with paganism, was mixed with maybe Druidism, if that's even a term. Um, and so it, 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 you know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't always 100%, you know, Roman, Roman Catholic doctrine. I think for a long time there was, uh, the, the 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 Catholic Church in Ireland and talking centuries back had quite a bit of autonomy until Rome maybe kind of imposed its 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 view a bit more but mm. uh, again don't quite quote me on that no. um I suppose more recently John O'Donoghue talks about talks about this um about this as well and and uh, how people maybe believe that uh, even in, in things like like curses you know or or that someone could look at you the wrong way and and Maybe spoil your milk or spoil your harvest. <laughs> it was called the evil eye. This even mixed with beliefs about the fairies, little people, <laughs> and you you don't mess with the fairies. You just you don't take them on. And also, but how the the land speaks to people and and the the you know the ancient conversation between the between the the, the, the coast and the sea and the, and the loneliness of the stones and the loneliness of the mountains that they can see each other but never quite quite meet the the, the peaks <laughs> of the mountain. Um, I think it's very much alive and well. In, in parts and in people here in Ireland. Yeah, um, I think we, we I think we very much are a mystical people by nature, effortlessly. I think it's only whenever I I have friends who come here from other countries and other parts of the world that I remember the 
the vast understanding of potentially mystical things. Mm-hmm. I think that rural people in particular, maybe people who work the land, see no real separation between the present and the eternal. You know, it's. Um, I think that they're very aware of their uh, kind of fleeting presence uh, on the earth and how they'll, 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 they'll turn from one type of matter to, to another, but, but they're, maybe they're, hopefully they're, their soul will basically remain the same, and I think it's 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 very much in her in 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 the subconscious of certainly at least some of those who who work and live in the land. You know. Yeah. Um. Maybe in closing. Northern Ireland is is in a strange place right now with, um, what's going on politically and uh, with Brexit and with different winds of change that are blowing across the. Across the Irish Sea, what are your hopes for Northern Ireland? I suppose in the immediate term, I would really like to see um, our politicians back in government and Stormont kind of show a united front, particularly after what's some of the, the sad recent events lately and, and the division caused by by Brexit. I would really like to see Northern Ireland be a, be a place where young people could could stay if, if they choose to after after graduation or 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 even after school. Um, that they could they could live and work here, and not be forced to to travel abroad. Or I'd like to see it being an open, open and welcome and place um, where people from all over the world could live and settle and, and thrive. I suppose I'm a bit of an idealist, but I would like to see it a model society in every way, in term environmentally, I suppose as well, um, socially, where you've great levels of social justice and where people have a real concern for each other. I would really like to see as well. The, the, the eraser or, or certainly the, the lesson of, of group identity so at the minute we have local elections and we see red, white and blue or green, white and orange and ultimately we're one people trying to inhabit a, a small piece of land we call Northern Ireland and I really think we, we have to get past that and stop dividing each other and see each other as, as, as human beings and, and live together with a real respect and understanding for each other the music in this episode is by Aaron Williams Banks from her EP All the Roses, streaming now on Spotify. <laughs>